Well, amen and amen. The name of Jesus Christ above all else. Church family, it is good now to turn our attention, our hearts, our ears to the living word of God. Last week, we began a new series called Shaped by the Psalms. It began with Psalm 1, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf never withers. I pray that this past week, as you meditated on the word of God as you considered the truth from the Bible, that your heart was encouraged, that you were able to sink the roots of your heart deep into the ever-flowing river of God's grace, and that you were encouraged as you saw glimpses of his glory in the word. Last week's passage pointed out that there are two paths, the way of the righteous, the way that is known by the Lord, and the way of the wicked, which certainly leads to death. This morning, if you would, please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. We're going to continue our series with a message entitled, Shaped by Joy. I will give you a warning. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It is one of the best passages in all of Scripture, and I have very much been looking forward to our time together in it. Today, Psalm chapter 16. Uh, You also saw maybe a white sheet of paper on your chair before you came in. That is not to draw a picture of me during the message. We'll use that later. But you may, I guess. Psalm chapter 16. God's word says this Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh God, we thank you for the truth in this passage, and I pray that you would give us faith to believe what you have declared here, that in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And I pray, O oh God, that even now as your people gather and we are here, we believe that we are in your presence. And so I ask that you would fill us with joy for your glory in Christ's name. 
Amen. I want to look at five exhortations that David shares with us here in Psalm 16. The Lord has used this passage perhaps more than any other to help me know and understand who he is and to increase my love for him. And I pray that he would do the same in your hearts this morning. The passage begins with a request. The psalmist cries out, preserve me, O God, keep me, hold me, cause me to endure because we know that we can grow weary that we can waste away, that there are enemies within and without. And he cries out, preserve me, O God. But then why should God preserve him? He grounds it in this reality. He continues by saying, for in you, God, I take refuge. The first exhortation, take refuge in God. Think about this with me for just a moment. When there is impending danger that is certainly coming, and that to stay put and to do nothing would mean almost certain harm, what do you do? You take refuge. Uh, We lived up in Indiana for 10 years before we moved down here, and there were some tornadoes, and you're supposed to go somewhere in the house that's safe from the tornadoes. If you have a basement, that's where you're supposed to go so that you can escape the impending danger and the certain harm that you will incur. We understand when hurricanes are coming, we're told to leave. And some of us are like, I'm from Florida, I ain't going nowhere. (laughs) Sometimes we should leave, right? Uh, We take refuge when we're told to take refuge from something that's coming. It's the whole concept behind a bomb shelter to hide us from the carnage or the destruction of the blast. I have a friend uh, who had a son, and for a while his son was dealing with uh, intermittent kind of semi-frequent seizures. And uh, over time, his son began to realize what would go on in his body right before one of these seizures would come and arrest his whole body and put him into uncontrollable convulsions. And so one morning, he's standing in the threshold in his parents' doorway, eating a bowl of cereal. And as he's standing there, he begins to feel this tingly sensation and taste in his mouth, and he knows that a seizure is about to come. And so what does he do? This middle school boy, he throws his bowl down to the ground. He runs and he jumps onto the bed and into his father's arms so that his father can hold him while he's going through the suffering. It's a beautiful picture of what we're to do when we have danger, when we have harm, when there is certain suffering coming. Brothers and sisters, we can run into our father's arms. He knew that his dad couldn't make the seizure stop, but he knew that he could be held in his father's arms while he went through the pain and the suffering. A question for us this morning, do we even recognize that there's danger around us? Do we even recognize that we need to seek refuge in someone or something that is greater and stronger than we are? Or do we think that this world, this life is just a big playground with a nice fence around it to kind of keep all of the really bad things out and a nice soft ground just in case we fall? Or do we recognize what the scriptures proclaim about this world that we live in? Dangers within and dangers without. Our souls apart from Christ are in rebellion against God. 
And so first, we actually need to take refuge from God in God. Because of our rebellion against him, we are due his full and complete unmitigated wrath. And the only way to be protected from that harm, from that suffering, from that pain, is to seek refuge in God. But then once we're in Christ, we're not completely free from danger. Our whole last series was about putting on the full armor of God. It's recognizing that there is spiritual warfare that is raging around us. We have an enemy who hates God and who hates you. He seeks to destroy our souls. He prowls around like a roaring lion trying to devour us. Do we know that there's danger? Take refuge in God. He is our only safe and true refuge. Run to him. David was shaped by this reality. We see this all throughout the Psalms. God's people all throughout redemptive history have been shaped by this truth that we can seek refuge in our Father's arms and that he will hold us no matter what it is that we are going through. I love Isaiah 40 verse 10. It says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and keep you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Brothers and sisters, run to the Lord. Seek refuge in him. It's the first exhortation here in Psalm 16. He continues in verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I love what David does here. He says, you are my Lord. This is not just another name for God. It's a title that describes who God is to David. God is the Lord of his life. That is, he is master. He is king. The second exhortation, submit to him as Lord. David recognizes that our God is not some cruel overlord, but rather, he says this, I have no good apart from you. He is a good king, a benevolent Lord. He is merciful. As king, he issues us commands just as we talked about last week in Psalm chapter 1 and what it says to us in 1 John chapter 5 that his commandments, they're not burdensome but they're issued from a father's heart that loves his children and he gives us rules because they show us how life works best and they keep our souls safe. He is a good king. Take refuge in him. Submit to him as Lord for you can be certain of this. Apart from him, you will receive no good. So the question for us is who is our king? Whom have we submitted to as Lord? Who occupies the throne of our hearts? Who commands our lives? If you've been in Christ for a while, a question as you look back to who you were a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, and as you look back and consider, is your life increasingly governed by the word of God? As you live, as you think, as you speak, 
Is it becoming more and more governed by the truth that we find in Scripture? Verses 3 through 6. I love how he turns a corner here. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. No, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I love the contrast that's being made in verses three and four. He begins by talking about the saints. That is, those who have been saved by grace through faith. Those who, though they were rebellious against the Lord, have been redeemed because of their hope and trust and faith and confidence in the Lord. And he says, they are the ones in whom is all my delight. Brothers and sisters, if you look around this room, this is a good, good gift that God has given to us. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the community that we experience with our spiritual family is a good gift from God. I oftentimes think back and consider how God has used faithful brothers and sisters to encourage me, to challenge me, to rebuke me, to just help me through difficult seasons of life. And I constantly think, oh God, thank you so much, not for just calling us to yourself, but also the wisdom that you exercised in calling us to one another. Faithfully following Jesus is not an individual sport. It's a team sport, and we desperately need one another. We can take delight and joy in one another. This is a good gift that the Lord has given to us. But a contrast is made here. There are the saints in the land, but then there are those who run after another God. They are filled with sorrow upon sorrow. And so if we would avoid a life that is filled with multiplied sorrow, then we must choose the Lord over all other gods of this world, be it money, sex, power, comfort, vanity, whatever it may be, we must choose the Lord if we are to remove ourselves from a life filled with sorrow upon sorrow. So who will I choose? Who will you choose? The third exhortation is to choose him. Take refuge in God, submit to him as Lord, and choose him over and against all other gods, over and against all other things in this world that claim that they can satisfy. I think what John Piper says about sin is helpful. He says this, it's on the screen. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise, it enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. So if we are to cease from sinning, if we're to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, then we must overcome the promise of happiness that is being held out by sin. 
We must believe that something or someone is better and that something else can satisfy me more and for longer, that something else can truly satisfy me infinitely and eternally, better than sin ever could. This whole concept is what Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century pastor and theologian called, I love this, the expulsive power of a superior pleasure. That's a 10 cent phrase right there. The expulsive power of a superior affection. It's the whole idea that in our hearts, our hearts are consistently going after what they love and what they desire. And what I love most is what I will pursue with as much passion and energy, the old timers used to say, yay, vehemence that I have within me that I'll pursue after that because I love it. And what this whole concept is, is that the only way that I can get that out, whatever that thing is that I believe will satisfy, that thing that I love more than anything else, is if I find something else that's better. Is if I really believe that something else will satisfy me more than whatever it is that I'm pursuing after. And so... If we were to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, then we must see and recognize and by God's grace truly believe that Jesus is better. Jesus is infinitely better than all that. Whatever that thing is that's in your heart, whatever that thing is that you continue to pursue after brother or sister, friend, Jesus is better. He is far more beautiful. He is far more glorious. He is far more worthy and deserving of praise. That is the only way that we will overcome the sin that is in our hearts. It's been said that all sin is turning away from Jesus to find satisfaction in something else. All sin is turning away from Jesus to find satisfaction in something else. We want something more than Jesus because we think that something is better. So pride is turning away from God to find satisfaction in self. I love myself more than I love God. Covetousness is turning away from God to find satisfaction in things. I love my things more than I love God. Lust is turning away from God to find satisfaction in sex. I love the pleasure sex gives me more than I love God. Bitterness It's turning away from God to find satisfaction in revenge. I love the feeling of revenge more than I love God. Or impatience. It's turning away from God to find satisfaction in my own uninterrupted plan. I love my plan more than I love God. The list can go on and on and on and perhaps for you, There's something different on your list. What is it that you pursue after, that you run after, that you think is better than Christ? It's what St. Augustine called a disordered love. 
And until I can have my heart rightly ordered so that I would love God supremely over all, then I'll continue to battle with sin. There's a choice, and all of us must make one or the other. You cannot remain neutral. So who is your chosen portion? Who is the one that you'll pursue after? He continues in verses 7 through 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall never be shaken. I love verse 7 because it reminds us of the tender love and kind care of God. He has not left us on our own. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Jesus didn't say, follow me. Oh, great, now go figure it out, right? No, he says, no, come follow me and I will take up residence within you. I will fill you with my spirit and I will help you to walk in all of my ways to continue to grow in knowledge and love and trust for who I am. He's not a doctor who examines you, tells you what's wrong, and then says, now go fix it. He's more like a physical therapist. He comes to our side and he says, look, I'll show you how to walk. And then he moves our legs and he puts them into position and he comes with us each step of the way. He is with us. He is helping us. He is in us, guiding us the whole way. This verse says that he gives us counsel, that he instructs us. He does this by his spirit, by his word, and through his people. If you're wondering what the recipe is to grow in Christ-likeness, fill yourself with truth from God's word. Surround yourself with God's people and continue to ask that the Lord would help you to be controlled by the spirit. The Lord gives us counsel He continues in verse eight by saying, I have set the Lord always before me. This is the next exhortation that we see here in the passage. Set the Lord always before me, before you. It is a beautiful picture. It is the idea of constantly and consistently having the Lord on the forefront of our minds so that every thought, every word, every action is done in light of who he is with a consideration of his presence in our lives. It's like the soldier who has a picture of his wife. And the whole time that he's out on the battle lines, he has that picture with him and he always sets her before him so he remembers what he's fighting for and what he longs for and to return to. Constantly putting that idea before him. It's like that vacation countdown that you have on your phone. And you show up to work And it's Monday morning, and you look at it real fast, and you say, only a few more days. Maybe it was the countdown till summer began. Parents, now that it's a couple weeks into summer, maybe it's a countdown for school to begin. (laughs) Whatever it is, we set it before us, and it helps us get through today, through this moment, as we have it on the forefront of our minds, as we think through it. Or more practically, it's like these glasses that are on my face. If I take them off, I can't see you. You might be making nasty faces at me right now, and I would never know. I would just smile back. 
I can't relate though because I can't see your faces, but when I set them before me, everything changes. Now I'm viewing life through the lenses and I can see clearly. And it's the same reality with setting the Lord always before us. Put him in front of you so that you view all of life and everything in it through the lens of who God is. When we do that, brothers and sisters, everything changes. This passage is declaring what happens when we set the Lord before us. When we do this, it's as if we're doing all of life before the face of God. This was a concept that the saints of old would have. It was called quorum Deo, that is before the face of God, recognizing that each moment I'm living in God's presence. He sees all that I'm doing. He hears everything that I'm saying and even my thoughts. He is a constant presence in my life. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. How would that change our lives if we would live in this way? He says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall never be shaken. No weapon that's fashioned against us can stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Our feet are firmly planted and we cannot be shaken when we recognize that the Lord is at our right hand. So verse nine begins with therefore. In light of the eight preceding verses and all of the truths there contained, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely because God is my refuge, because he is my Lord, because I have chosen him and because I set the Lord always before me, my heart is glad. Dear friends, that's it. That is the secret to having a glad heart that cannot be shaken by anything, a truly and genuinely glad heart. If you have been striving to have a glad heart and you've tried all sorts of things, can I invite you this morning, cease from your strivings No longer pursue after anything else that you think can deliver. Gladness of heart is the result of taking refuge in God, submitting to him as Lord, choosing him, and setting him always before you. Not only gladness of heart, but look at what it says. My whole being rejoices. The gladness that's in our hearts cannot be contained. It explodes and it begins to manifest itself outwardly. Our whole being is happy in Jesus. We are secure and have confidence. This is what the psalmist is confident of. That no matter what happens in life, the Lord, the one in whom we take refuge, he continues by saying, will not abandon our souls to shield. He will not let us ultimately see corruption. Brothers and sisters, this is a promise that no matter what we experience in this life, 
if we have sought refuge in God, there is nothing that can harm us. We are invincible until we are done with doing all that we can for God's glory in this world, and then we die and enter into life, eternal life, life in the presence of the Lord, where we will experience full joy and pleasure forevermore. This is what Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who, after you have died, can send your soul to hell. And what he's saying is, who cares about the here and now in light of everything that's coming? That you and I are going to exist 300 years from now. That you and I are going to exist three trillion ages from now. And he says, think about that. You will not ultimately see corruption. You will not be abandoned in death, but I will bring you to myself. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 9. We're afflicted in every way, yes, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. This one, struck down, but not destroyed. This is where the concept of perspective is so crucial. And perspective is a critical piece of wisdom. And wisdom is gained in maturity. One sure sign of lack of maturity is lack of perspective. This is true in life maturity and it's true in spiritual maturity. If I tell my kids, go clean up your room, and if you clean up your room, Daddy will either give you chocolate or I'll pay for your college. They're going to pick the chocolate every time, right? Because they don't have the perspective. They don't recognize looking down how much greater of a reward that is. Same with us, brothers and sisters. Oh, that we would have an eternal perspective, that we would live in light of eternity and that would shape the way we think about the here and now and the things that we pursue after in the here and now and that we would recognize that delayed gratification that will be infinite and eternal is so much better than what will be instantly satisfying here in the moment. We're being shown what can happen in our souls if we adopt an eternal perspective rather than an earthly perspective. Brothers and sisters, knowing our ultimate destination brings gladness of heart, rejoicing, and security. Mature Christians don't just look at what's here and now. We look beyond this moment, beyond this year, beyond this season, beyond this life to all that God has promised in the next. And then we get to the best verse in the whole Bible. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This verse changed everything for me. It was a call to walk on his path, just like what we saw last week in Psalm chapter 1. It's the final exhortation in the passage The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. Here, the Lord makes known to us the path of life. Which will we choose? Joy is 
powerful. Again, I think Piper is helpful in defining it. He says this, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. It is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Brothers and sisters, joy really is a feeling. And sometimes we get really freaked out about talking about feelings at church. But feelings, it's part of who we are. It's part of how God made us. We should holistically be pursuing after the Lord. And joy really is a feeling. It really is an emotion. It's a feeling of pleasure or happiness. But it's not a fleeting pleasure. It's experienced deep within the soul. Now, the humbling part of this definition, and I believe it's true, is when he says that it's produced by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we cannot conjure up joy in our lives. We cannot squeeze it out of us. We can pursue it, but we cannot manufacture it. We can seek joy as we faithfully come to God's word, as we hear his voice, as we see him for who he is. We can pursue joy as we consider how the Lord has worked in our lives and how he's working in the lives of others around us. But a question, do you truly believe that God wants you to have joy? Do you truly believe that God wants you to have joy if you answer that? with anything other than an overwhelming and emphatic yes, then I would say to you this morning that your view and understanding of the Lord is less than what the Bible teaches. God wants his people to experience joy. As we talked about last week, we oftentimes think about God as a cosmic killjoy, a fun sucker who's out there to restrain us or constrain us from pursuing after things that would truly bring us pleasure. And this is why this passage changed my life. Because even though I wouldn't have said it, I truly believe that God is keeping good things from me. And so I thought I had two choices. I can either experience joy in all of the things that this world has to offer, or I can follow Jesus. But those are two different paths. Joy or Jesus. And when I read this passage and understood what it meant, I finally understood that this is not joy at all. This is manufactured, fleeting, and fake, but true joy, lasting joy, genuine joy will only ever be found in Jesus. And so my pursuit of joy and my pursuit of Jesus were not two roads that were diverged, but rather were one. And so if I would truly pursue joy, I would only find it in him. It changed everything for me. God is not holding out on me. God is not wanting my life to be boring or to keep me from experiencing pleasure. He's trying to keep me from being satisfied in something that won't last and will only lead to death. I want to invite our worship team to come back up. And as they do that, I have one more quote here that I want to end with, but On that sheet of paper that you received, I want to invite you to consider for a few moments, what is it in your life that you have been seeking joy in? 
What is it that you maybe consistently turn from Jesus to find satisfaction in? Maybe it's the same thing that's recurring. Maybe it's something that you're wrestling with during this season. What is it for you that you wrestle in thinking that it will satisfy you or bring more joy than you can find in the Lord? It might be something that is overtly and clearly sinful. It could be something that's a good thing but you've made it the ultimate thing, more precious, more important than Jesus. I'd invite you to write it down. Don't put your name on the sheet. Just write that thing down. Ask the Lord that he would help you, that he would guide you, that he would help you to see what's going on in your heart. And to write that thing down. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So I'll be quiet for a moment. I'll invite you to consider what that is, to write it down. And then once you have it written down, I would encourage you, I know this might be a little bit different, but take that sheet, crumble it up, and just come throw it here before the Lord. Just throw it here on the floor and say, Lord, I want to seek satisfaction and joy in nothing except for you and you supremely. If it's hard for you to get up, throw it from the back row. I don't care. But let's fill the front of this stage with things that are less than Jesus and make it a declaration that we want our joy and our satisfaction to be found only in him.